0: hey everybody welcome to the sensibly speaking podcast this is chris shelton your host thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week and as you see i am joined by my good friend and colleague john Atak. uh john welcome to my show and i of course am being welcome to yours as well (laughs)
1: Yes. Um, I think by now people probably know that I'm John Atak and they probably know that you're Chris Shelton and that's about all there is to it, really. So um, what should we start with today, Chris?
0: <laughs> ah, yes. Um, it's so funny because we've already been talking for an hour <laughs> and then we hit record. So this week we have planned two things to discuss with you uh, folks out there. Um one of them is the follow-up sort of on the Manson thing in that it sort of, kind of, in some people's minds, connects. And this is something called the Process Church. And there was a- the Process Church
1: of the Final Judgment.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this was, uh, well, John's going to talk about this at more length because I've got a passing familiarity with it from having read a- Two-thirds of a book that was heavily conspiratorial, heavily connecting dots that absolutely did not connect. And I recognized that about halfway through and realized this is not something I, I need to continue to read. But The Process Church was a thing. It's just that this book was connecting it to Son of Sam and the serial killers and Satanism and Satanism.
1: The Ultimate Evil by Maury Terry, I'm guessing.
0: That's right. And it was written in the middle of the satanic panic. And, you know, it's an exemplary example, (laughs) if I will, of the satanic panic in full bloom, Mm -hmm. uh, connecting dots that just should not have been connected. Mm -hmm. You know, and the point is that um, there are scary people out there. There are scary groups out there. There are groups that do bad things we don't have to then make up new ones The The real ones are bad enough. Yeah. And that's a repeating mantra for me because in the cult world, you find people trying to make this actually worse than it already is. And it's already really bad. That all being said, John, you want to take it away on this in terms of what your knowledge of the process church is and what it, and it's uh, sort of connection with Scientology.
1: I I don't really feel I have a lot to say about it. The the subject came up the last time we spoke because of the suggested connection between Charles Manson's so called family and the process. I am now 14 books into my research. I'm reading the transcripts of trials and I'm not seeing anything that robustly connects anyone in the Manson family with the process. Um, We have, what we do find is that there are three. Two other people in the in the family, um, Steve Grogan, uh, and uh, who was called Clem or Scramble Head. They have many names. These people, and Bruce Davis, they were involved in Scientology. Um, I'd be very pleased if anybody has direct information, particularly about Grogan, because I can show that, that Davis was over in England studying Scientology. Apparently at the behest of Charles Manson, and apparently with funding taken from the Manson family. Um, Wow. But, you know, I've gone all the way through back copies of the Auditor magazine to to see if I can find... um, The other name is Joel Pugh, who was sent over here and ended up not going back because he was dead. And it's been suggested that Bruce Davies killed him. He was involved in two of the Manson murders Uh, and convicted of that. So... So I've got very robust connections between Scientology and indeed the ideas of Scientology. I've now found more and more and more since we last spoke um, terms that were being used by members of the family, like time track, postulate, you know, right. hats, things that are definitely silent. tone 40. Manson um, at one point shouts down a whole room of people, you know, they're it's at a dance and everybody falls silent. And afterwards he's asked by a family member, what was it you did there? And he says, it's a military thing called Tone 40. And uh, it, James Buddy G- James Buddy Day, who's who made a, a film called Manson, The Final Words, and a book called um, Hippie Cult Leader, is strenuously of the belief that jo- Charles Manson, when he said he didn't lie, was telling the truth. So I'd just like to point out, That was a lie. (laughs) Charles Manson knew full well that the expression tone 40 only exists in Scientology and that he was still using it in 1969 is rather interesting. So, lots of connections there. With the process, you have two people who are involved by the surname of Moore, I believe, in Scientology in England. And they then, and this is a curiosity for me with Manson, that, that Manson, the other teaching that that he's adhering to is the book of revelation the revelation of saint john the divine the last book of the new testament this is instilled into him through childhood and he will refer to it frequently and will tell members of the family that he is in fact the reincarnation of jesus and i'm pretty confident that he came to that conclusion as a consequence of scientology past life belief Mm. so you've you've got that's sort of going on. And it's kind of weird, you know, well, of course, Hubbard was working out of the book of Revelation too, that his ceremonies with Jack Parsons, the Babylon working in January 1946, is coming from this same place. They are both of them, people who believe they're in the end days. Hubbard's trying to urge it on a little bit by getting the Scarlet Woman to come and help him um, at that time. And then Scientology comes out of this. The thought that then These people, the Moors, who changed their name to de Grimston, um, they too get caught up in the Crowleyite ideas of Revelation and the beast, which is, of course, what Crowley called himself, the Beast 666 which is one of two beasts that you find. I, I had to read the book of Revelation last week, so I know there are two beasts in there, not just one, two for the price of one. Um, oh, I thought, decide-
0: a, I thought it was just the one coming up out of the pit and, and that whole oh, revelation. No, there's
1: is- a second beast. There is a second beast. Yeah. It's huh. incredible, isn't it? Just when, you're not, when you think you, you know how many beasts there are. <laughs> it doesn't say what his number is. Also, just to solve a little mystery, when, when the Manson family put X's on their forehead, I can't see any. I say I'm 14 books in and nobody points out the obvious, which is this is the mark of the beast. Mentioned in Revelation that so that the beast won't do harm to his own type, they will put a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. So, which of course Manson later morphed into a swastika just to show what his true affiliations were. Um, but so the Grimstons, they're involved in Scientology, they think Scientology is great, and then they get some kind of Crowley conversion. They go back to the source material of Scientology. Um, and pick up this idea that is, curiously, the idea that's underneath what Ron Hubbard called his favourite book. And I keep saying this, everybody should read William Belitho's 12 Against the Gods. If you want to understand Hubbard, read what he said was his favourite book. Because it's a book about people who did something, and it doesn't matter to Belitho whether they're good or evil. So he's got... The role model for Hubbard, Cagliostro, is in there. Um, who's the great, great conman, Um, But he's also got Woodrow Wilson, which was, and you get this thought that if he'd waited and a few more years, because he wrote the book in the thirties, then Hitler would have been the last person. And the Grimstons get this idea of you just mustn't be a grey. This is before all aliens were greys. You mustn't be a grey. You must be black or white. And so they too, they exalted Hitler as a great hero, but would also probably have included Jesus. They moved between the US and America. They went down to Mexico for a while. They were found walking the beaches of California, all dressed in black, which is a bad idea on a hot day, by the way, and walking their German shepherds, which we call Alsatians in this country. And they then Maury Terry ties them into this whole, as far as I understand it, there's some lit of their literature is found um, at David Berkowitz's apartment, the son of Sam, serial killer. Mm-hmm. And he's therefore a member of this group. I'm not sure that that was ever proven. Um, and the idea is then that there's this satanic network, which is running through the world, probably involved with the Zionist organized government and QAnon and all of the other things that are making me say these things against my will at this moment. Um, all of this arrant nonsense that that and, and let's say that there were investigations in the US, Australia, Holland, and the UK at this time into the Satanic abuse allegations. Not one um, skeleton of a baby was exhumed through the hundreds of reports. That's and we can be absolutely sure there were people like the Grimston's people like Alistair Crowley, um, Manson and his followers talk about a, a place in Los Angeles that they call the spiral staircase. I think because it had a spiral staircase where satanic rituals were being performed, where animals were being killed in sacrifices and Manson decries it. Yeah, he says, "Oh no, this is horrible." You know, <laughs> given what he was going to do later, it's a bit lightweight, frankly. But so, of course, there are these little coven's and um, Sabbats and what have you. But the idea that there's you know an international movement that keeps children underneath pizza parlors um, where Hillary Clinton tickles them to get their adrenochrome isn't probably not true seems incredibly improbable so i i think you know i don't really have any deeper interest in in the process they seem to have declined with the death of the two grimstones one hopes so.
0: Well, there is uh, your favorite. <laughs> there is an entire Wikipedia page on this. <laughs> and it's got lots and lots of sources cited and all of that. But the point is that uh, if you're interested, you can go check it out. This has been a documented thing. This is not some weird back of the magazine kind of article or something. There's all kinds of information out there about this because it's been so looked into and investigated. And like I cited, there was this book in the 80s, which really was the epitome of the satanic panic, And I really don't know. Um, I think a lot of folks uh, who listen to this show or, you know, catch us have some concept or lived through the satanic panic. And I was a teenager at that time and I railed against the whole thing. I thought it was ridiculous Mm -hmm. um, because I was a Dungeons and Dragons player. I was a high schooler. I was and I knew uh, what Scientology was and I knew it wasn't satanic. And I knew that these other things weren't satanic. And here were all these crazy people calling them satanic. And I was like, well, this doesn't make any
1: sense. This is stupid. Think be saying that L. Ron Hubbard performed ritual magic. Exactly,
0: right? Uh, and so that's the thing is you find out that there are hidden truths in this world and that there are things that people get up to that are incredibly bizarre. And incredibly strange, and incredibly destructive. And so, you know, so, I'm, so we don't sit here saying, "Yeah, there's no such thing as satanic rituals, and there's no such thing as satanic belief, and there's no such thing as animal sacrifice." Of course, there are. But we're but, but show me some evidence that this connects to this process church and to you know, uh, Scientology into the Mansons. Cause that it doesn't, it's not there. It's, 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 it's my favorite target practice, uh, thing, which is connecting dots that don't connect. I hate people to do that. It drives me crazy, uh, because I used to do it myself and, and I know how, how easy it is to do, but it's incredibly lazy thinking. And once you learn how to actually do research, like, like scientifically, academically, which I've done, it's, you don't get away with that kind of thinking anymore. You can't let yourself be a lazy thinker like that. And that's and when you look you
1: know, at Wikipedia, you have to be very careful to look at what the sources of statements are. Yeah, that's right. I, I performed a, a little experiment the other week because uh, Microsoft Edge, which I don't normally use, offered me its... Um, AI assistant on Bing. And I went, oh, yeah, okay, let's check this out, this brilliant new technology that I've been hearing and we've talked about. And uh, so I put in, I thought we'd try a complex question. Um, What religion did Charles Manson's grandma follow? And it came back very, the disciples of Christ, it said. And it gave me a page of material. Now, she didn't, she was a member of the Church of the Nazarene. So it gave me a completely wrong piece of information and it gave, yeah. gave me then three reference notes, which I checked. One of them was Wikipedia. Um, and it's that thing of you have to be willing yourself to check sources. That's right. Um, That's somebody, right. and I won't, I won't say who again because she knows who she is, but I made the mistake of, of saying that, that Quentin Hubbard, Elrond Hubbard's oldest child by Mary Sue Hubbard, who was the designated heir to Elrond Hubbard, um, that he had done the bridge twice, that he had gone through to class 12 twice, that he had done the old OT levels twice. And Dennis Ehrlich, quite rightly, you know, put me right, because he was the guy that programmed Quentin. He said, no, they cancelled all of his certificates and he didn't do it second time. You know, so even though I was told this by an executive of the Church of Scientology, it wasn't in fact true. So that's fine. But then a comment was made, if John's wrong about this, How can we trust any of his other work? Now, my response to that is, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky has almost 1,200 reference notes. When you do research on something, at least check a few of those notes to make sure. Because as I think we've heard before on on this show, uh, Adele Davis in writing, let's eat right to keep fit and other books, she was sued by somebody, as, as I remember it, Wikipedia will tell us, As I remember it, she was sued because a child had died undergoing one of her nutritional regimes. And um, it came out during the case that all of those abundant reference notes at the end of her book, she'd hired researchers to find all of the work about vitamins and minerals she could. And they just listed them. They didn't refer to them. She didn't read them. They didn't support her work in any way. So, we need to look around a little bit when when choosing our sources of authority and wikipedia is kind of notorious that if you're looking about historical events it can be brilliant if you're looking about a contemporary cult group page will have been written by the group
0: you got to watch out for that that's right unless it's scientology they banned them although they're probably getting around it and that's the whole point of course is that the reason i and i've said this before and i'll say it again um The reason I point to Wikipedia is because everybody can go there. And from there, you can go to the sources, the original sources. And that's always what you would do.
1: Because they're made by professional researchers. where with Wikipedia, you don't really know who's researched it. So, um, yeah, look down into the footnotes, click on one of those, have a look at the source. And there is this problem. And the reason I bring up AI is because of this leveling that, that, doesn't have the capacity to determine the truth of what's being said and AI hasn't got to that point yet we as human beings do have that capacity we can check and when one of the things for me is if I feel that that somebody has told me something that that conflicts with my information that I used to feel quite annoyed when people disagreed with me in any way and then I understood that for all of us it's disagreeable being disagreed with of course it is you know we like to feel we're right and so then I started to rejoice in the cognitive dissonance that if somebody challenges me sufficiently politely that it's a wonderful thing to be in that kind of strange space that slightly dissociated feeling that you get whenever you read an L. Ron Hubbard text Um, that it's a good thing when Cognitive distance sets in because it gives you the chance to now consider your information again and, and correct it, put it straight. And yep. by being a part of a community of learning rather than being, you know, the, the grand poobah who decides what people ought to think, having the humility to do that is so much more comfortable, you know, than, than being right all the time. Um, Fair so, enough. Yeah.
0: Well, if I may... You may. I may. may. There is something I want to ask you about, because I think I heard you say this twice now, and I want to ask to clarify. Mm -hmm. Did you say Quentin Hubbard was Hubbard's oldest
1: child by Mary Sue? Yes, as far as I understand it. Was Diana older?
0: Diana was born in 52, and Quentin was 54.
1: There you go. He's the oldest son of the third marriage of the man who didn't have a second marriage, but already had three children we know of so (laughs) yeah you're quite you're you're quite right and Uh, he's named i think it's a 1963 policy letter somewhere in the 60s where hubbard says that quentin will inherit
0: yeah yeah he was named as the successor yeah Yeah. and then of course he went and died
1: yes killed himself
0: yes I since it's come up and since I have been asked about this and I don't have an opinion because I know I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um I I assume uh from the what I have read uh with the police investigation that was done that it was suicide. Yes. Do you have any reason to believe otherwise?
1: I know that Mary Sue Hubbard um put a section of the guardian's office to work to disprove that idea. But um, it seemed to me that the autopsy report was straightforward. He was found in a car with the exhaust connected in and he died a couple of days afterwards from the carbon monoxide poisoning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there was this strange, have we talked about this, that I, I was 1986, I was in Sun Valley. I'd given my first talk in the United States of America and everybody had gone and this guy turned up and I was, sat in their wonderful hot tub looking out over all the lights of the valley. And this guy came along and said, uh, Hi, my name's Joe Leonard. That's not my real name. <laughs> I used to work for Guardian's Office Public Relations. I'm the only person who read all of the documents seized by the FBI. Now, I don't think anybody could have read that quantity of documents, frankly. But, And I did know somebody else who was from Guardian's Office Legal who made the same claim. But putting that aside, he then said, They didn't understand what they'd got because they didn't speak Scientologies. Mm -hmm. And I went, well, that's for sure. You know, when there was an order to do R245 on somebody, what's your FBI guy going to be saying? And he said, so one of the things that's in those documents that's never been discussed is branch four. We've got branch one, branch two. Branch one, covert data collection or harassing people. Branch two, overt data collection. Hubbard was so stupid that he numbered them. You know, so he could have just had a branch there, but he actually put it there so you can see that there's not just branch two, there'll be a branch one. I don't know what branch three was, but branch four, he said, was the gun carrying squad of the Guardian's office in the United States. And he said the feds had documents about them going into gay bars in California, putting a gun in the mouth of the owner and saying, if this boy comes in here... You throw him out, showing him a picture of Quentin Hubbard. I think with that degree of protection around him, it seems incredibly unlikely that Quentin Hubbard was murdered. We never found out why that might have been. You know, there's no motive for anybody to kill Quentin. And we do know, I've talked with a couple of people who were quite close to Quentin, my friend Bonnie Woods, who I worked with for several years, who's a dear friend. She was a friend of Quentin's. And we know the trauma that was being brought. You know, he'd had all of his certificates cancelled. He was no longer going to run Scientology. And so much had been expected of him. He was, what, 22 when he died? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he's gay. And his father, well, of course, we hear that in his teens, Ron Hubbard was also having a little bit of sodomy going on. Um,
0: Well, he certainly... 180'd on his public attitude towards uh, LGBT uh, with his writings.
1: Yeah. That gay people are covertly hostile. Mm-hmm. They are backstabbers. That that was his perception and that's that.
0: It would be um, better to put them on a barge in the middle of the river and blow them up as a solution than have to live with them, was ready said in Science of Survival.
1: And yet we find him what? in 19, February 1966, going to John McMaster and saying, you're the world's first real clear. And John said, I don't know why he chose me. It's and then I, I, think I told you right. I told you about the phone call I had in the well, mid-90s. This guy who was a Hollywood set designer called me up and he said that he was one of the 10 first clears. And he said, and I've never quite understood why it was that seven of us we're gay. We called ourselves the Queer Clears. And I just had to say, you haven't worked out why Ron Hubbard in 1966 would choose seven homosexuals to represent Scientology. After all he'd been through trying to control people with security checking, he needed to know something about you that he could use to devastate your reputation. Mm -hmm. Even if it wasn't illegal, he could say, oh, I've just found out that John McMaster was having sex with his secretary, Colin.
0: Yep. And it would have been enough to ruin anybody back then.
1: Yeah. And and so, you know, he's saying one thing and doing another, which is fairly usual for for Ron Hubbard. But Quentin is brought up in this this atmosphere where he is going to succeed the great man. Yeah. And he is a very he's a relatively simple human being. He is he is not an intellectual. He is not, you know, he was known for going around the ship. Putting his arms out and going because he wanted to be a pilot yeah you know? he
0: wanted to be a pilot need and he wanted to be a dancer he was just a, he was just a kid
1: and he was according to bonnie and and the other person i know who knew him he was a delightful human being he was a really kind friendly human being something that you know we hear about say uh, roanne horwich mm-hmm. uh, hubbard that that you know in my brief dealings with her some years ago i i was astounded at, at how clever she was and how focused she was. Quentin wasn't. Quentin was just a kid. And everything in his world was turned upside down. He couldn't go into gay bars. Um, What he was doing was wrong, bad, and evil. And he had no no agency in the world anymore. Um, His father had most utterly and totally rejected him. And so, no, I... A lot of people have come to me and said, no, it was, he was murdered. It's like, by whom? And for what reason?
0: Right. Exactly. The, um, the, the, the mysterious deaths of Scientology since we've kind of wandered into that territory a little bit and because I am always been curious about uh, asking you about these things and I just never we just never had the opportunity and all the talks we've done, there's so much to talk about. Um so there is one other one that I've always had my attention on and I've never come to a conclusion about I don't let I don't let myself go there, but I always point to it as this is really fucking weird. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, much later, it's not Hubbard, it's Miscavige, but it's Flo Barnett's death. Yeah. That's weird. And what I know about it, I've always wanted to compare notes with you about this. We never really have. So now this is perfectly good a time. What I understand from what I've read and I haven't read much, but I've seen this report, this official looking report, I guess it was the coroner's report or the, or the police report that she was ruled, uh, to have this, is Shelly Miscavige's mom, Her actual mom, she was an independent Scientologist. She had left the church. She wanted to keep doing Scientology. She was doing it outside the church. This was the late 1980s when RTC was in full bloom. They had taken out or were in the process of taking out the Advanced Ability Center in uh, California. They were in the process of uh, really strengthening up the trademark and enforcement and the legal and coming after people hard And so Shelley's own mom, Flo Barnett, right, leaves Scientology officially, the umbrella, and goes out and does does independent Scientology. And then she's found at some point later, uh, suicide by rifle, three shots. And you think to yourself, are you kidding me right now?
1: Well, she may have been out of the body at the time she did it.
0: Oh, well, clearly.
1: Yeah. um, What are your thoughts on this? There, there, there are quite a number of of peculiar deaths associated with Scientology. I, I did an estimate uh, when I was theoretically the president of FactNet, um, which was actually being run by Bob Penny, uh, bless him, wonderful man, and Lawrence Wallershine, oh. also a wonderful man, mm-hmm. and. Um, they said, well, what about suicides in Scientology? So I collected a list of, I think it was 38 names. Wow. And I started looking at the actual membership of Scientology Mm -hmm. and the percentile. And it was the suicide rate in Scientology was about 10 times the average in the US, which is incredibly high. and some of the cases, I mean, in, in Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, I write about Susan Meister, who was aboard the ship. Um, mm. And mm-hmm. I think the only illustration in Blue Sky is a copy of a letter that that she sent to her parents about Scientology is expanding. And you can see that she's in a manic state when she writes this letter. Now, her dad went, it was in Morocco, I think, that, that, a suicide happened aboard ship. Her dad went out there, uh, was not allowed to see the body. L. Ron Hubbard would not talk to him. And he, was, he had a military background and the weapon that was put forward as the weapon with which she had killed herself had too long a barrel to have been used in that way. He is then told that not only can't he see his daughter's body, but um, I think there's... They'd said that there'd been an outbreak of typhoid fever, so she had to be buried in a lead coffin. So he never saw her, and I will never forget the, the day that I first called George Meister because I'd read what he'd said about it. I'd read, I'd talked to various people, and I got his phone number and I called him up, and he said, um, "If if this proves to be, yet another uh, harassment." Attack on me, then I will have your legs broken. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it came out that all of this stuff had happened to this poor man. Yep. Over this case, where there was something wrong. If you then look to the death of James Stewart in Edinburgh in 1968 and the cover-up, um, this is all to me. I think. Now that I've heard this one. It's in Blue Sky.
0: Oh, is it? Okay. Okay.
1: Which one is um, this one? He he was they basically, you know, he went and, and he's it's talked about in Inside Scientology, not the Janet Reitman book, but the original by mm. Robert Kaufman. And I interviewed Bill Robertson, who was running the uh, what what is it, the Hubbard Association for Personal Integrity or something. Happy. Happy, um, yeah. <laughs> happy. Uh, And I interviewed David Mayo, who was working there at the time. And this is where OT3 was first delivered to the public. Mm. Now, the newspaper reports said that Stuart jumped from a hotel window to his death. And Scientology spokesman and his wife said, well, he wasn't really very involved in Scientology. It's nothing to do with us. He was the head of the Durban Org. He was doing OT3. Before the police got to his room and I believe this is true with Kyle Brennan as well. All Scientology material was removed from the room Mm. so there wouldn't be an association. So, technically, a crime scene was interfered with in these cases, and there should have been something happening after that. We then, of course, come to Lisa McPherson, and there are so many of these cases where there's something we don't know. There's something that doesn't seem to make sense. And yet, in all the years that, and it's now 40, 40 years actually next month since I left the Church of Scientology, whatever that is. And in all these years, nobody has brought me evidence that I can add up to explain these deaths. You know, I can't see that, that a death was ordered and I haven't found anybody who murdered these people. So it, it's in this country, what a coroner would return is what's called an open verdict saying don't know it's yeah. not clearly suicide there's something else happening and and the same with with Shelley's mum mm-hmm. and you know one hopes that Shelley herself will maybe come forward and and help us out with understanding what's happened what happened to her over these years
0: yeah exactly that would be amazing the two people that would absolutely blow the World's doors down on Scientology would be if Shelley left or if Tom Cruise left. <laughs> Either one of them could be devastating. Truly devastating. Yeah,
1: and and it, and it, I mean, I think there are a few people up at the top though, and that we've seen. Mm-hmm. You know that you know Robert and Stacy Young. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was involved with kind of exit counselling them, if you like, because four years after they left. Which was nineteen ninety three. I got a phone call from from Robert Vaughan Young, who I thought of as Vaughan, and he used to call me John, and I used to call him Vaughan. And in fact, his name was Vaughn and my name is John. So it gets very confusing. The <laughs> two countries separated by a common language, right? <laughs> but I read pieces that Vaughan had written when he was head of Gopr uh, in the US uh, about MK Ultra which is a subject which keeps coming back when Scientology is or Charles Manson are mentioned. Yeah. And so I, I admired those pieces. I thought they were very good. And so he calls me up and, says, and, and he was amazed that I knew who he was. And he said, look, I've read your book, and I want to tell you that in the four years since we left, we've only ever talked to ex-Sea people <laughs> in a circle. And so I went over there to Corona del Mar, where they were living the high life in bankruptcy, not quite having having adapted to the real world from 20 years in Scientology. And met these two delightful people and and went through with them what it was, you know, what they needed to to actually kind of um, decompress a little from the belief. Stacy was very willing. Vaughan was very unwilling to you know, he needed the technology. And this is a man who'd been studying a master's degree in philosophy of mind when he was recruited. He was a smart boy. Yeah. Um, but we did pull these things away from them and they were then ready to testify against and, and did various work. So they'd come from Miscavige's inner circle. Jesse Prince came from there. Yeah. Mark, Marty Rathburn. And of course, Mike Rinder came from there. We've, We've seen so much from there. Yeah. And as you say, it, it would be good to have those last bits. Um, who knows what Tom Cruise might say?
0: Oh, that would be interesting. If yeah. that guy could get past the, the, the sort of... <laughs> See, that's the thing. I don't really have any hope for him because his narcissism is so... Was already apparent. And Scientology has simply exacerbated it to a degree where it's just... I I just don't see it happening unless he has one of those, you know, rock bottom or, you know, uh, epiphanal moments or something, but I, I don't see it happening. So it
1: has, has happened to a lot of people and and there is, there's particular, in studies of psychopaths that there's this notion of when they get to the age of about 50, Mm -hmm. often the traits will start to diminish. Mm -hmm. And I've, Saw an interview this this guy in London, and he specialises in treatment of psychopaths. There are mm. very few people who do. so a psychiatrist, and he was interviewing a guy who spent most of his adult life in prison. And the guy said, "I just don't want to be this anymore. I, I I don't want to live this way. It's a rotten life." Right. But he was saying that you can get to this point where it it doesn't work for you, and with with Tom Cruise. I find it hard to think of him as a malignant narcissist. As a person who is self-involved in that sense of narcissism, I find that fairly easy. And we've talked about this before, right? I mm-hmm. have two other classes of narcissists, the benign, they, they don't do anybody any harm, they're just selfish, and the benevolent. And the benevolent narcissists include lots of people in, in show business. I would say Taylor Swift. Is a very good contemporary example. If you look at documentary about her, she was filmed from a very early age and she keeps saying, I want to please people. I want people to admire me. I want to be adulated. David Bowie talked about the, the complete absence of affection from his parents and said, You know, I'm Major Tom. That song's about my alienation. And he grew up, he became adult. He stopped being that person because he got the adulation and i think developed herself elton john same thing his his homosexuality was something that made him feel inferior in some way and he needed the adulation mm-hmm. and i think they exemplify maturation tom cruise is is probably quite capable of that too I, i'm interested perhaps even more so in john travolta Neither of them strike me as intellectuals. Um,
0: No, I don't think. I mean, they're smart. It's not to say that, you know, not striking as intellectual is not to say they're stupid people. They're very capable and very smart people. But no, I would not say either one of them are intellectual.
1: I'm going to burst your bubble. Oh, If you talk with Spanky Taylor, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the wonderful Spanky Taylor, I love Spanky Taylor. She's great. Um, Who was there when we first met at Toronto. It's the first time I met her. She was, I think she was Travolta's handler for something like 15 years. Mm -hmm. And she said this thing about, we had to be really careful when we put him out in public that he had a script because he's not very bright. Mm. So he is a splendid actor. If he's got a script, uh, in fact, Emma Thompson, the, the British actress, Said she, who was in primary colors with him, mm-hmm. she said she thinks he's the greatest actor in the world. But I think he's one of those characters, Kubrick said that of Peter Sellers. And with Peter Sellers as well, if you try and engage with the person, there isn't that much going on that they're brilliant at becoming somebody else. So,
0: well, the only reason I will push back on that at all with Travolta is because of what he does for a living outside of acting, because he also has a um, a whole airplane thing and a pilot thing that he does. And he's a he is a trained pilot. He can fly many, many different kinds of airplanes and stupid people can't do that. And that's why I kind of but, think to myself, well, it doesn't totally fit my picture of him. So I have a hard time with that assessment. But I understand I what they're saying.
1: A, I think there's a specific of aptitude so you know yeah. Howard Gardner on, on the notion that mm. <clears throat> there are different he calls them different types of, types of intelligence or yeah
0: something. yeah
1: they're aptitudes and you can fly a plane and not be you know a tremendously clever human being
0: absolutely and, I, and that's why I mean is I don't want to kind of I don't want to leave the audience with the impression that at least I don't want to come across as thinking, well, he's adult or he's a really bright, you know, he's a really nice guy and he's, and he's kind of really good in this one area, but otherwise he's kind of a moron. I, I don't, I just don't see Travolta that way, but I, but I'm, but I'm totally getting what your what, what the observations are. I'm, I, I get mm-hmm. it. I get it. And Uh, and like I said, I don't think either one of these men are intellectuals. I don't see either one of them sitting down and reading an academic paper or really diving into the details of the psychology of anything or that kind of thing. I think they're hyper-focused on intense areas of experience they want, and that's what drives them to learn about it. And, And from that Point of view, I'll, I would go with yeah, they're not necessarily well-rounded individuals.
1: <laughs> and I think there's a difference. I mean, certainly, Leah Remini's description of Tom Cruise and, and the cookies in Troublemaker mm-hmm. gives you the idea that that he's a you know he's a child. He's, yeah. he's just not really developed. And, and I have the sense with Cruise, and, and I apologize in advance for this, that he's not a particularly nice human being. No but i have the idea with travolta that he he is a particularly nice human being
0: he is genuinely and and i and not only will i'm sure spanky attest to that but every person i've ever met including myself who met him the guy is just the nicest guy in the world to people mm-hmm. you doesn't have to be nice to and that's when you know when you're dealing with somebody who's different in the celebrity world cuz i you know i've i've run into more than a couple of them and they can be class a assholes all the time except mm-hmm. when they're on camera. Mm-hmm. And then there's the guys who are just people. And and I've always put JT in that category.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, um William uh is it Goldman or Golding, one of the, one of them wrote Lord of the Flies and, and the other was uh, wrote Butch Cassidy and Sundance.
0: Yeah, I said Princess it, Bride. The one who wrote I think but- it was William Goldman is the screenwriter, I think.
1: Yeah. And yeah. he said that in all his time in Hollywood, and he was involved in all the President's Men and all sorts of films, yeah. there were only two actors he'd met who were human beings. Um, one of them was Jack Lemon. I don't remember offhand who the other one was, but ah. I I think it's a reasonable observation that in the professions where you get on the stage, I, remember, I can't remember who it was, but it was somebody who'd come off a talk show and they, they said, you know, they're on a talk show with a celebrated actor. And afterwards in the green room had said to the actor, you know, Wow, you know, what a really nice guy you are. And the actor looked at him and said, I'm an actor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes they're very self-aware. Yeah. And, <laughs> and see, and Cruz, I think, is so self-involved in his world, his projects, his intention. And this is what OT7 does to you, as well as all of the rest of Scientology, is, is there's so many landmines in that and out, that... outfit. That Mm -hmm. that are not obvious. I'm telling you guys, there's there's all the obvious stuff we talk about, and then there's stuff really deep. And I and I'll I'll, you know, and there'll be we'll go into that in future shows. But um, but Cruz is, I mean, everything about Scientology feeds his ego, and that guy's ego was already oversized. So it's so I really think that it's a you know I I understand the labels as far as the beneficent and you know uh, malignant narcissism. There's a there's, I don't know what to give to Cruz except to say he's so blinded by his own greatness that he will hurt people in the process of thinking he's helping them. Mm. And the 9 11, um, you know, firefighters purification program, which I just went on a whole roll about a couple days ago on my Q&A show was an example of that. He's so sure that he knows what's going to detoxify these firefighters that he gets a million dollars and he puts a million dollars in and he kind of forces it through and people end up getting hurt and there's even deaths. And where is he then? He's nowhere around. Right. He makes it happen. And then he goes off to his next thing and he counts it in his head as I've done all of the firefighters of New York a solid by giving them the purification rundown. And he's not there for any of the fallout.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, what am I supposed to think about that guy? You know?
1: Well, he's not very big. (laughs) No, he's not. (laughs) And he can bigger than Charles Manson, though. Charles Hmm. Manson was only five foot two.
0: Yeah, I know. And Miscavige, too, right? It's a uh, small man. I, I
1: wouldn't say that. I'd never say that. What a horrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's fun stuff. Um, anyway, we kind of went off on the on the celebrities there a little bit. But we, yeah, we were talking about the deaths and then... Um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to get your take on all of that. So thank you for all of that. It's it's a very interesting topic. I couldn't help but but notice in the through line there with the narcissism that it seems the way we're talking about it, that it seems to be a um, one way of maybe thinking about it is a is a blocked or stuck stage of development. Yeah, if there's a sort of immaturity there.
1: Yeah, and and that's exactly what the creator of of the contemporary. Idea of malignant narcissism. Eric Fromm said, Um, he starts out, and for some reason, the dates of the books are written in my mind. In 1941, there's a great book called Escape from Freedom, his first book, and he's he got out of Germany in 33 very quickly because he was both Jewish and a communist, and uh, that was not very popular, I'm told, and went to the States and pondered on this, why has this terrible thing happened in my beloved country? Mm -hmm. And he decided that it was because Nazism was hindering the development of the self. And so his first argument is the idea of the pseudo-self, that people have a self and it's reliant upon a comment from the outside that they're trying to please the people around them by being who they are, by saying what they do, by dressing the way they do, by the job they have. They're not doing it to satisfy themselves. And he says at that point, about 60% of people are in this category. And I think you've heard my fascination with this number before. Schopenhauer in the 19th century said 60% of people do not, something like they don't develop into humans, something quite savage. Um, Milgram 62.5% 62.5% of people on the first of the 17 experiments were willing to go all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course... Um, that
0: was the electric then, shock. Yeah. The, the, the idea that did. they were electric shocking people. They weren't really, but, but they were under hmm. the impression they were. And they were willing to go to fatal levels of electric shock.
1: Forexes.
0: Right? To deliver yeah. the punishment that was ordered to them that they deliver. And they were following orders. Hmm. like well, white
1: white coat was saying the experiment mm-hmm. needs you to continue, so it's right. there was a kind of anthropomorphism of the experiment rather than the experimenter, which is quite interesting, and um milgram's obedience to authority is is a classic text, definitely yeah um it's a shame that contemporary psychologists are trying to push him aside. You know, I do understand that the that the experiments could be considered unethical. Because somebody might have been traumatised by doing this, but as far as we understand it, I don't think anybody came forward from the seventeen experiments to say that they were traumatised. So I okay. understand the theory, you know, and with that, but I think he was very careful in the way he he ran things. Then finally, Jane McGregor here at the at Nottingham University puts forward the idea: sixty percent of people are what she calls apaths; they don't develop a self. And I think so. I think that's exactly what it is that. Um, and our society doesn't really, you know, and certainly the advertisers in our world and places like Facebook, they're not Snapchat. They're not encouraging us to grow up. That's not what they want. They Isn't want it? manipulable adolescents. They, they want people who, who, um, can be controlled and, and got to buy things. The same is sadly true for our politicians, that. That they're they're more interested in having control than in giving control. They're more interested in being the pundits rather than having democracy. You know this very strange situation. Well, we know best. You just do as you're told, and everything will be fine. You know. Right. So, I do think that it's very hard to develop a self in, in our society, and of, of course, it's it's a process that begins at zero. You're born with no control. You know. And the the idea should be that that you become more and more able to make decisions. And I think the Romans had it that you enter adulthood at the age of 32. I think that's about 50 years too young. (laughs) But, But I think that so many people, I mean, Joseph Campbell several times told this story about sitting in a diner and listening to this kid saying he didn't want to drink his orange juice and his dad saying i've never done a single thing in my life that i wanted to do (laughs) and that is the pseudo self that is the you know i don't have any rights i don't therefore have any responsibilities um look at me i'm wonderful you know i'm doing the right thing aren't i you know this is you know i've got these big glasses on and these high heel boots and all this glitter i'm doing the right thing aren't i and instead of just you know, those of us who are able to sit back comfortably and, you know, enjoy the world around us, having arrived at a point of conceit where we believe that our opinions are probably okay, even though everybody around seems to disagree with us, you know. Um, But coming to a point where we are, as explained to my wife last night, my wonderful wife, that my granddad, who sadly I never met, he died the year before I was born. I don't think, the two events are connected in any way. I don't think. Oh no, that child will be born or anything. Um, but he had this thing. People would ask him for advice. He was a um, working class kid. He was trained as a coffin maker, um, and then had his own building company and did quite well. Um, but people would ask him for advice. He was quite small as well. I think he was about five foot four or something, um, and uh, he would give advice. And he made this point, which my mother relayed to me, which I you th- when I was a kid, that he would listen to the advice that people gave him and then he would make his mind up what to do. And that stayed with me ever since. And I, you know, people find it frustrating that I'll ask their opinion about something and then when they've given me their opinion, I'll say, okay, and do the opposite, you know, do the other. But I want to hear what people have to say. I want to hear... You know, to take information in then and and I hope I do this with other people that if they ask for my opinion, that I'll tell them what I think. But then when they do something else, I'll be supportive of what they've done. Mm-hmm. You know, I won't be told you so. <laughs> you know, and there's enough of that in the world. So that's part of having a self, of having the confidence in your own opinions, but also knowing when you don't know, knowing. When you need to go to somebody who does understand you know plumbing or um, brain surgery a bit better than you do, you know who can fix your car or what have you, understanding who the experts are and finding out how to determine who the experts are um, becomes really important in life, because that way you can be your own man, or now that we've got into an age of sexual liberation, you can be your own woman. And you can also be your own non-binary if you so choose. But having that right to to say, this is who I want to be. I, I don't want to fit in with this set of people or that set of people. I like this set of people. I hang out with them. I had quite an experience of it because at the age of 14, I walked out of school. Headmaster was rude about my mother. And um, I told him he's going to have to take that back. And this was the most prestigious school in the county. And I was terrified of this man more than he was huge, great big man, about 300 pounds. And uh, he'd caned me before, you know, which was no fun. Mm-hmm. And, but he, my mum had written a perfectly truthful note explaining why I hadn't gone to school the afternoon before because she'd been late getting lunch. And I went home for lunch and had a friend arriving. And a friend was late. And this guy read this note and he called my mother a liar and a cheat. And then I don't think about these things. I certainly don't think about myself as being brave or courageous in any way. But it was just, no, you, you, don't, you don't do that until you apologise and I'm not coming back to school. And he never did. So I got 11 weeks holiday. And then I went to another school at the age of 15 and I'd grown my hair long. And there are... 1100 kids in the school and I was the only boy with long hair and the teachers kept going would you get a haircut and because they didn't um I mean the headmaster at at the school I was at before the prestigious school had said "Eh, get your haircut you trollop the last time he ordered me to get and that was more what I was used to so when somebody asked me nicely I went "Nah." (laughs) and I didn't realize until about six months in that I was the only kid and I'd become the cool kid I'd moved into this society, and I kind of somehow in that eleven weeks, I'd gone, no, this is who I am, this is who I want to be. This is the way it is for me. And it, it you know, it was it was accidental. It was thrust upon me. It wasn't that I made a set of decisions, it's just that at that point in my life I could establish who I was. So I changed, I was called Johnny, my name is actually jonathan so i changed my name to john you know i grew my hair i wore the clothes i wanted to wear and i began to develop a self and i think that process is often interrupted because people join a group that they then have to establish themselves in by being the individual who came into this school society all of the groups the jocks the the scholars the The skinhead even the lone skinhead all wanted to be my friend because i was eccentric and unusual and i didn't get that usual rejection of the new kid i was exotic and interesting to them and that helped me more to to say well this is who i am and this is who i want to be and then I got into Scientology.
0: You remind me of a very funny movie uh, that was ridiculously stupid, uh, but incredibly funny. Uh, called the New Guy. Actually, <laughs> it was a comedy. Uh, it's it's worth watching because it 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 actually has this uh, has this character who it goes along that exact same trajectory, but in a very funny way. Um, we need to move on to something else, but I will say that. Um, I had the exact opposite experience at 15 because that's when I entered into the world of conformity and Scientology. And I was very much my own person, only child growing up for most of my life until my brother came along and very much into books, very bookish person, very solitary. I had friends, but not a lot of them and not large social circles. And then, uh, but I was very much my own kind of person that way. I was kind of not really super comfortable in my skin, but I was at least I knew who I was and, uh, what I wanted to do. And then Scientology came along. And, uh, when I dived into that, uh, you will go, I have said this so many times, we've both talked about this so many times that it's a conformity culture. It's it's it, that is what it's all about. That's what cults are. It is, it is conformity to a rule and, and even, you know, making you look the same and that kind of thing. So, um, so that sort of stunted things for a little while. And I definitely noted after I got out of Scientology that that stage as a development thing was a real thing. and that and that picking back up on that, that there were ways it would stunt your growth, not fully. You can't you can't let these models get too, rigid. Life is very fluid and, and we're all very different, but but the models help serve as some guideposts. And for me coming out of Scientology, I definitely had some maturation to deal with, you know, that kind of thing. Um, some narcissism to deal with, some self-image issues to deal with. I, you know, I think we all do all through our lives, but, you know, when you're in a cult for a few decades, you, you get a pretty strong dollop of that. And,
1: and and then, you know. I mean it's interesting to to pick up here and and about the difference in our experience yeah because of course you know I was nineteen years old traumatic end of a relationship thrust into Scientology and my nine year experience of Scientology was very much that I was an individual mm. that um, because I didn't join staff um, that the experience was just so different that that for me, being a Scientologist was part of my non-conformity with the larger society. You know, I kept the long hair um for the first what, three years or something. And and I found myself I mean, a friend of mine said after we'd left that it was me he'd followed, not Ron Hubbard. Hmm. And I think because I wasn't in the Sea Org, because none of that dreadful militaristic punitive culture that was nothing. that i didn't experience that at all when i was twice shouted at um the, the other week this lad that i met last saw in december 1983 i spoke with this guy um a week ago and out of nowhere he'd come back and i found out i only knew him through his stepdad who asked that he Could his son come and stepson come and stay with me? And he at the time was 14 and the second in command of Scientology in the UK. And on his way out, I only found out last week that in fact, his real dad is one of only two people who shouted at me when I was in Scientology. Oh, wow. And I didn't realize I shouted back both times this happened. And I suppose I saw people being ploughed under, really, and being brought into conformity, but it didn't happen to me, Mm. that I felt very much in control of my own life. And whenever anything happened, you know, I was told to disconnect from my friend Ira Jalef, I just went, no, you show me that he's been through a proper investigation to declare him a suppressive person, and I'll think about it, but no. You haven't proved anything. He's not suppressive and I'm not doing it. And it was a shock to me after I left finding how much these techniques, and certainly within the Sea Org, what hope have you got? You know, it's you against everyone if you try to be an individual in the Sea Org. Oh, so yeah. those processes weren't applied to me. And so it's interesting that even in the same group, and it was nine years, but, you know, I, I went off and went to art college for two years because I went, well, this, this is what I want to do. This is much more important. And I had all of these people say, oh, no, you must, you know, join the Sea Org or do this. I, no, I'm an artist. Artists are the most important people of society, as Ron Hubbard says. There <laughs> it is. Little, little quotations ready to trot out for them. So right. th- that is to say that if you have arrived at a point and I had a lot further to go, I had a lot further to go. But if, you've, if you're on a path towards selfhood, then it's very hard to disturb it. So even membership of Scientology didn't do that. And that's why I left with guns blazing. You know, I, I was like, what, nobody in the UK has, has said you know, they oppose this and, and somebody should, here, this is my name, this is my address, contact me, that, which was to help people who are involved. I was, you know, it was six months before I was willing to talk to the media about it. Right. Um, but initially it was like, people are being oppressed in this group. I'm going to do something about it. And then, then I found out why that's a bad idea.
0: <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Sir.
1: Taking the money and run. What's wrong with me? Have you heard about this Danish artist? It's just come in the news today, and he, he charged something like, I don't know, seventy dollars or $80,000 to a Danish museum for a piece that he called Take the Money and Run. And the court have determined that he's got to pay the money back. And he's saying, but the work of art was that I took the money.
0: Oh, my God. that is. So
1: the court said he can keep his expenses.
0: That's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish uh, I wish I'd had, you know, it's funny because you, there are so many different ways to frame these thoughts. There's so many different ways to look at our decision making and how we decide or are pushed into conformity um, with going with the flow. And being convinced along the way, that going with the flow and conforming is actually the greatest good for the greatest number, yeah. and there's so many little things that Hubbard put together, or that Scientologists, in their own cleverness, will use,
1: because it's not all just Hubbard. There's a point. No, no, it's a collaborative effort, definitely. It, it really is. That's, that's always true, though we we mustn't victim blame, but I think we. We helped it along by having, firstly, by having the image of him as a perfected human being, (laughs) smoking a hundred cigarettes a day. Need I say more?
0: Well, I'll tell you, growing up in a family of smokers, that was never, that was a feature, not a bug to me, right? Until it wasn't. And as-
1: Until you read him saying, it's people pretending to be volcanoes. (laughs) (laughs) Ron, why are you pretending to be a volcano?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I just, uh, but on that identity thing and that maturation thing and all that, the narcissism and stuff, it's just, it's an interesting bundle of stuff Mm. and it's, and it's an interesting thing that we do in trying to take it apart and look at it from all these different angles because, you know, trying to, trying to fit in, trying to be part of, of things, there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's being taken advantage of in doing that. It's, it's knowing that you're bringing people into the fold who, who don't know what they're getting into. You know, it's, it's that that makes it wrong. And it's, and it's, and it's such an interesting back and forth because in so many ways, this world is made up of people who want to belong or who tend in that direction and who want to make, you know, who want to be part of something bigger than themselves and, and do, and, and have a, and have a more powerful activity as a result, right? We can many hands, right? Make the loads lighter, that kind of
1: thing. Make a positive contribution to society as opposed to psychopaths who don't give a shit.
0: That's right. And then there's some in the world who just seem to be not that they they're their take, their look at things is individualistic more so than it is group oriented. It's, you know, it's a way of dividing people and it's a, it's a way of thinking about their tendencies, you know? And there's, there, was a, there was a meme I posted the other day about uh, that I thought was, was quite a great analogy of this, which is that, you know, there are people who will take three pieces of pizza because there's not enough for everybody. And there are people who will take one piece of pizza because there's not enough for everybody
1: and there are people who don't eat pizza because they're gluten intolerant
0: yeah i know but you but you get what i'm saying it's like you have the same thing you have two mm-hmm. different actions for the same reason it's it's just and it all depends on how you're looking at the world is it i mm-hmm. got to get mine before other people take mine or is it i got to make sure other people have what i have or I want to I want to make sure of that hmm and it's an interesting you know not dichotomy but it's just kind of an interesting thing that we that we that we can sort that way sometimes and when we go too far in either of those directions is when things go completely off the rails you know? and
1: and and let let me give you an example that and I, which i think is really important to to understand how cultural generosity is how cultural thinking about other people is i i spent some time um Studying um, Native Americans, people who I'm told call themselves Indians, which is very confusing. Um, but you know, I've looked at East Coast, West Coast, down the middle, what have you. But the Plains people, going right the way up from you know the Cheyenne, Cheyenne through the, the Omaha, the Ponca, the, the Lakota, going all the way up to the, say the Tlingit. What a wonderful word that is, Tlingit. It's just lovely to say up near Vancouver and on the Aleutian Islands, that those cultures all share an idea of generosity that a, a human being is great because of what they give away. Mm. Now, our Western European culture is more a person is great because of what they have accumulated. Mm. And we then kind of expect, you know, Bill Bill and Melinda will give away, what was it, $59 billion so far. And but to the any of those Native American cultures, the idea of having accumulated that much is disgusting. Mm. So and I came across this. I was, I wrote a play about the Ponka, this wonderful people. And wow. Um they had the Cheyenne and the Lakota either side of them who'd come raiding them. So they were an agricultural people, an agrarian people, who had to defend themselves against this. And in the course of my research, I found out that a bunch of them When they were told that they got to move on to a reservation, they said, "We'd like to go and talk to the Great White Father about this." And and the Indian agent said, "Yeah, great, go go and do that." So they go all the way to Washington, and when they get back, all the people have been moved. That's simple, and they're not really given any help in getting back, and it's quite a long way. But they're resourceful people, so they go to the reservation, and one group of them, uh, under a man called Standing Bear which is a interesting, difficult name. Um, his four sons all die from smallpox. Uh, they're smallpox blankets, they're the greatest use of biological warfare in history by the US government. Mm-hmm. And the last one to die is the oldest, and, and he says, take me home to bury me. And so he takes his tribe, 60 people, with a wagon with the body of his son in, and they managed to get 500 miles before the US Cavalry get them. And uh, they're, I think, billeting with the Omaha people at at that time. And they're they're put into jail. And this is the point where a journalist becomes involved and something very strange happens. The general who led the so-called Indian Wars, General Crook, um, under uh, Sherman, the man who burned the South before mm-hmm. becoming the um, representative for Indian Affairs, <laughs> um, Crook has been out and he's he's been there. The the various battles, the the massacres that have been, and he goes to the local news office and he gets this journalist and he said, um, Have you thought about habeas corpus? Journalists gets a lawyer. And they put a writ of habeas corpus in, saying until these Indians are charged with something, they can only be held for 24 hours. They have to release them. And they go back home. They go back home. 1876, the next year, the US brings in a law saying that, that Native Americans, the Indian people, are none of them adult and are wards of the US court. They therefore don't have the right to property and they don't have the right... To vote, it was the nineteen twenties before that was changed. So it went on fifty years nearly, uh, and horrible things happened around that. Um, the what's it called? The Night of the Flower Moon or something? A wonderful book about the foundation of the FBI, investigating the murders of a whole series of Native people who'd looked into a huge amount of money that they weren't allowed to spend without having a white guardian, and the white guardians were killing them off to. To get the money
0: yeah that's right. the um that's a movie that's coming out right now scorsese directed that
1: right yeah. i read the book a few years ago Killer's this flower moon i think it's called killers of flower moon you're exactly right and yeah. very well written book and a, a remarkable story yeah. but the journalist who had put in you know you know crook had gone to sea wrote a book um buckskin and blanket days in the 1870s or something i managed to get a copy of it And here you have an account of a European, a a white man, who before the California gold rush had created the chaos in the Black Hills and across the territories of the Plains people, had ridden out with them. And he makes this point about killing buffalo, that whoever kills the most buffalo has to give them all away. Mm. So this idea of generosity mm. is is important in this culture mm-hmm. so these are people who look at the pizza and say i'm not hungry right got and it and of course mm. when they moved onto the reservations and carpetbaggers came along and said oh like look at that horse they'd give it away so they'd give away their year's supplies from the government and you know, because they were in a different culture it's not to say i am not one of the people who idealizes native americans i think that that is a, a simplistic view uh, go and watch a man called horse and realize they really did do those things there was a battle at sitting Bull, who who i do greatly respect but there was a battle that he couldn't attend because he had i think 118 self-inflicted wounds which is a part of their religious ritual so don't not recommending self-inflicted wounds at any point here if anybody's anybody's thinking about doing to themselves it's not a good idea not a good idea go and get a good movie instead
0: yeah exactly how interesting but they, but, it, but it really speaks to the point right it's cultural it's individual there's there's lots of ways of looking at it you know it's not I, I, you know it's not a binary thing i guess you know it's not a simple thing it's not black and white like almost everything with us hmm. but it's an interesting point to make and it's an interesting way to look at people right that there are people who tend more selfish there are people who tend more you know group oriented and there are cultures that tend more selfish and tend more group oriented
1: and, and, and European know. American culture tends to be more individualistic yeah. that's right. and Asian culture tends to be more family orientated. that's right and I think there's a certain health there I, I've started to worry about the idea you know of people working to get to heaven you know that they want their re, they're going to get their reward yeah, in their heaven. Reward. That's right. theologian many 30 years ago said to me well you know i'm a christian i understand why i'm fighting scientology why are you doing it and it was sort of because it's the right thing to do doesn't nothing more complicated than that it's the right. right thing to do and it therefore gives me a feeling of smugness on a daily basis that i'm doing the right thing
0: it's an emotionally fulfilling activity
1: it is but right? you know when you When somebody comes back years later and and reckons that you helped them transform their life, that's great.
0: There's nothing else quite like that feeling Um, because it's a very unique thing to do that for somebody. It's not something everybody does. It's not something everybody can do and it's not something everybody wants to do. But when you do it and somebody acknowledges that, you know, that you really did, it's... I don't know why, why heaven it's, it's right here. I mean, that's what it is. That's, that's what heaven is
1: all about, but men do not see in the words of Jesus. Yeah.
0: There we go. Yeah. Well, speaking of, maybe we could go into segwaying into our last topic here because we, 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 I'm sure that, that we, are we... Sure I have
1: time. to. Oh, are we, are we topic.
0: wrapping up? Okay.
1: I, well, I think we, we may have to because, because I think that last topic is going to take a little, a little bit of five minutes. No problem. So, um, do you want to frighten the the people in into by saying what it is that you wanted to talk about? So they'll be sat there on the edge of their seats?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it does roll one into the other. I love the way we connect dots on this stuff. It's really quite wonderful the way our conversations go. Um, yeah, we do have a show to do and it is on psychedelics. And I got things to say. John has things to say. On the use of psychedelics, on the efficacy of psychedelics, and the current trends uh, of using psychedelics in therapeutic settings uh, to address complex PTSD issues and to address trauma, right? Um, yep. And there's good, bad, right, wrong, and mixed up with all of this, of course, and lots of opinions, and, and we want to talk about that. So we, tend, we went off on a whole roll on all this other stuff today, so we will save that. I know we led with it. I know we're awful, uh, but we're just we're just who we are. So you guys know us now. <laughs>
1: so, so if you're about to drop a tab and watch us, hang on.
0: Yeah, <laughs> wait till next time, and uh, and we'll regroup and get on to that. Uh, and yeah, so on that happy note, uh, John, you have any other uh, previews, activities, things you want to tell the audience about that you're up to these days? This Manson project seems to be really have overtaken your uh, your life right now
1: yeah it's been it's been incredible it started in because i i felt you know i was aggrieved that that my late friend Jolly West was being accused of writing the blueprint for m k ultra and the hundred and forty six operations that you know i i can i don't like it when people attack my friends i don't know it could just be me but i don't like it and reading what i read i then went well, why aren't, why is this guy not talking about Scientology? There's no single mention of Scientology in Tom O'Neill's book Chaos. And I knew because I've got the internal documents that, and, and I said in Let's Sell These People a piece of Blue Sky when it was first published in 1990, Charles Manson had 150 hours of Scientology auditing. So then I started looking at other books and going, nobody's talking about those. That also led me talking about psychedelics to the why aren't they talking about Datura, the drug that Tex Watson was taking. And finally, you know, and we talked about this in the show, the last show, that why aren't they talking about the end days Christianity that, that he grew up in. And so, you know, I I now have a proposal with an agent and we're looking for a publisher. Um, there's any publishers watching this. We're looking for a huge advance if you'd like to give us one. Um, starting to talk to a few documentary makers about doing something okay. and what's incredible to me is that the further I've gone into this and so I'm 14 books in now and reading the transcripts of the trial the the more I've seen the way that information's been twisted that facts have been changed um and that agendas have been followed and i think it is often the case say if say You know, say you're a Marxist and you want to write history. You're going to write a history that's about the oppression of of the poor by the rich. Mm. Reasonable subject. But you're going to fit something to to your view of the world. It could be said that because I'm aware of Scientology, I could be said that I'm fitting this to that view of the world. I'm not. What I see is that people have a template and they look at how they, what they think Charles Manson was. And they then fit him into that template. And because he's a kind of archetype now, you know, you've got Jack the Ripper, you've got Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charles Manson, Jim Jones. There are a few people who who they just, you know, in the same way in the 60s, everybody had a poster of Che Guevara. It's like Manson's taken over now. And I, the more I've looked, the more I've gone in 54 years, this story has not actually been told. What actually happened, the nine murders that happened and why they happened, has not been explained. It's not even been begun to explain. And there are more than 40 best-selling books on this subject. Um, so I'm deeply immersed in that. But what I should be doing is promoting the audiobook of Scientology, The Cultural Greed. Um, in 2014, I published a little, little book, which is available as an e-book. It's available as a print book. And You can now hear my dulcet tones reading it out in ASMR, and you can go to sleep. Now, what I wanted to do with this booklet was to, in the shortest form possible, take the most significant things about Scientology and put them to an audience that that had no prior knowledge, that had not had the misfortune to be involved. So Blue Sky is meant to be a definitive work, and it's what Robert Vaughan Young Scientology's top PR, who announced Aaron Hubbard's death, he called it the definitive work on Scientology. Stephen Kent, professor, said it's the foundation of all modern scholarship in Scientology. That's great, wonderful to have achieved that, and it's been proved to be helpful, so I'm told by many people who've read it, in dispelling some of the mythology of Scientology. But I wanted to write a little book that, that wouldn't be complicated and would show some of the very worst excesses by pointing to real actual documents. So it, for example, reprints Aaron Hubbard's 1947 request to the Veterans Administration for psychiatric treatment because he was so seriously disturbed. So that book is now available as an audiobook. And um, it would be very helpful to me if people would um, go out and grab a copy. You can on my on my channel, you can see so two chapters that I read out, did it as a video book with the thought that maybe with Patreon, we could have, because I found that people, rather than reading my papers, like to watch me reading them out, <laughs> which is extraordinarily odd as far as I'm <laughs> concerned, because it's much slower. Um, but there there are two chapters being read out, quite it's very brief, very little book. Uh, so that's that's what I'm meant to be doing with my life at the moment, instead of, um, being immersed in the life and times of Charles Manson.
0: Yes. Yes. It's, a uh, it's really something, isn't it? 40 bestsellers and none of them are getting this. And I want to highlight something for y'all, uh, 150 hours. That's 12 Scientology intensives. Mm. That's enough. It would have been enough to get to clear, not without, I mean, easily, especially in the 1960s, auditing was different back then than it is now, and it took less hours to make more progress. The, Hubbard elaborated on the con greatly, and Miscavige really went to town on that, in expanding the number of hours it takes to move through Scientology, uh, for obvious reasons, right? Because this is charged for by the intensive, and an intensive...
1: It, it's more than business. I had in nine years.
0: Oh, well, Jesus. Well, and I
1: was mean. OT5 by the time I left.
0: Right, there you go. So... so
1: and it, I mean, there are so many points that come up. Only one of the authors, I think it's Bugliosi, in Helter Skelter, just gives us the aside that Charles Manson attested to the state of Theta clear, Ah. which is what we would later call operating Thetan. So Manson believed, and it's because of Scientology that he came to believe he was a reincarnation of Jesus, and those murders would not have happened. If Manson had not been led to that delusion, I'm not, the Scientology organization wasn't involved in this, but it is worth saying there is a tremendous danger in telling people that they can just ransack their past lives and change their behaviors. I mean, talk about narcissism, deciding you were Jesus, you know,
0: my God. Well, let me, just, uh, let me just share this with the audience right now, since you brought that up and it's not something that's, it's like you talk about inside baseball, man. Uh, that's a term I've just picked up from other people. I've never really used it before, but um, the, and I, what I call it is the deep minutiae, right? Like the deep details of Scientology, the stuff you're not gonna see on Aftermath, you're not gonna see in any documentary anywhere, you gotta dive in and there's a lot to dive in on. There's there's you know over half a million words of Scientology texts. Theta clear, I happen to have it here. This is, and the reason I'm going to read this out is because I want you to know what Manson thought about himself as a Scientologist. If it's true, he attested to theta clear, you know, according to the claim, this is what he was attesting to. A person who operates exterior to a body without need of a body. That's the definition of a theta clear. That state wherein the preclear can remain with certainty outside his body when the body is hurt. Uh, a theta clear is, can be defined as a person who is at cause over his own reactive bank and can create and uncreate it at will. Less accurately, he is a person who is willing to experience. You know what Hubbard liked to experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the these are the Hubbard definitions taken right out of his lectures from that time period that he, that Manson would have been exposed to. And said, yeah, that's what I, that's me. And then of course we take the psychedelics and the Jimson weed and all the rest. And we throw that into the mix because he wasn't just using Scientology for what he was doing and you get a self image. And then you get this projected onto other people and you throw past lives in there and all the, you know, the, the other mental phenomena And you get not only like a really crazy person, but you get somebody who's like in a whole nother world.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 you know, the Manson family, to put it in context, just like the the Process Church of the Final Judgment, the Manson family is a splinter group from Scientology. Wow.
0: And that is a bold claim. That is like, <laughs> wow, talk about a new take on this. Because we went to great pains when we did a show a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly did, and I think you did too, to try to say, look, we're not saying Scientology was the thing you know, behind all this. It's a factor. We said that out loud. It's, this mm-hmm. auditing is not to be ignored. People have ignored it because they don't understand it. They don't understand what Scientology is and what it does. They thought it was just like a Christian revival or something, mm-hmm. and that's how much importance they gave it. But when you and I, when we know, when you guys listening to this, you guys know that Scientology is not Christianity. It's not, it's not a faith,
1: it's a set of techniques. That's right. It's a set of techniques that can te- teach you how to control others using your will, as Alistair Crowley called it, or intention. Yep as Hubbard. And that's what it is about. And, uh, no, I note from the definition of theta clear that L. Ron Hubbard screamed like a baby when he came off his motorbike. So he obviously was not able to be exterior when he'd harmed the body. So, um, it's all, it's a pack of lies. What can I say?
0: That's right. <laughs> but people, true. but, and that, and the scary thing about it, the scariest thing, let so let's, I'll, I'll put this out there. The scariest mm-hmm. thing about this is exactly what happened with the Manson family, is you can go so far, so far down this rabbit hole of delusion, believing that these states are real, believing that you are Jesus incarnate, that you are this powerful ultra super being, this Uber being, and you bring people around you who also want to partake in that because you're coming across with such certainty and such determination and such intention that people are drawn to you like a magnet, especially needful people, and that's what these people were. Yeah, this is no joke. This is how it works, and so I only, I, you know, I'm only get all like like this because I want people to get that, you know, with this research you're doing, it's like holy cow, it's not a light matter. This is this is as bad as Scientology can actually get. And here it is. And and believe me, the church would do anything to not connect those dots. So um, so the fact that, that you're connecting them now and with evidence is really good news.
1: You know? and, and they've already had Psychology Today a couple of months ago, pull a, a statement about Manson being involved in Scientology. They've threatened Spin Magazine. Uh, So they are getting a little bit sensitive about this. And it's that that truth that comes from PR. When you get caught doing something wrong, admit it. Exactly. So if in 1970, instead of Operation Rawhide, the operation to stop anybody from knowing about this, they'd just told the truth, it wouldn't bite them quite as hard as it's probably going to bite them, especially on the heels of the Danny Masterson case, which is shown... Scientology's, you know, attitude, the citizens commission on human rights, indeed, you know, such nonsense. What a joke. But there we are. There we are. So, uh, Yep. <laughs>
0: All right, folks. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. We, we, you know, you know how much we love to talk and we will keep we going. So I'm going to go ahead and cut it off here. I think we'll stop us. Yeah. But, um, but I really look forward to talking to you again, and we'll probably do it sooner than later because, um, I, I'm looking forward to the psychedelics thing. I have a lot to say about it. I'm sure you do too. And, um, you know, and I might have a little personal experience with that to contribute to the conversation. So that, well, might of course,
1: be... you're allowed to where you live because you live in a state where both cannabis and now psilocybin are legal. That's correct. So who'd have guessed these chemicals that were destroying our youth in the 1960s? That's another point, you know, just to close on it, that it's very likely that if cannabis and LSD had been legal during the time of the family, yeah. one of the people at sparnes ranch one of the 35 members of the family would have gone to the police before anybody was killed but because they'd been criminalized because of their use of these two substances which are now legal well lsd is not legal psilocybin which is a fairly close analog it is they they would have there there would have been more s- social cohesion and i think that you know, that was one of the terrible things about criminalizing drugs that rather than saying, look, if they're a problem, they're a health problem. And, you know, if they're a problem, it's because we've just created the cartels in Colombia and else in Mexico that are now dominating governments in the same way that Elon Musk dominates them in the rest of the world.
0: That's you know? right. That's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people think this is some addiction problem, it's like, that is that. That's a. It's real. It's true. It is. But that's at the bottom of the problem. There are so many things going on with the drug problem. We uh, the whole economies rely on it at this point. More
1: than a hundred thousand people. I, I saw this yesterday. More than a hundred thousand people died in the United States because of prescribed opioids mm. last year. Prescription opioids. Yeah. There has never been a drug problem on that scale in the world before. So the war on drugs is, is you know. It's a stupid thing. It's, got-
0: it's the stupidest. It's the stupidest. Yep.
1: All right, and as we're proving, we're going to
0: wrap up now. Okay, guys, Honest. thank you very much for coming around and watching. Seriously, yep. we really love it. Um, we, we love you. We love your viewership. We love your support. Obviously, subscribe to our channels. Um, support our channels. Support our work. You all know how. It's in the description section of our videos. And on that happy note, see you next time. Bye bye.
1: See you next time.